This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Inside Story on BFM 89.9. Good evening. This is Inside Story with Lee Tree Lin and Sharat Kutin. Tonight, a closer look at the rise of hate speech in our country and really how to cool things off. First, we'll be discussing what's led to this current surge in hate speech and racial rhetoric and, and what we can do to moderate it. Then we ask, where does enforcement enter into the picture? So tell us, have you noticed an uptick in racial rhetoric? And um, have you, you know, ever stopped to think about whether you might be contributing to this atmosphere? Uh, that number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. This is Inside Story. It is 6.08. So I don't necessarily want to uh, retread all the things that have brought us to this conversation because there has been a lot. Uh, I will just say that I think most of us would remember that in the dying days of the campaign for GE15 that there was a significant uptick uh, in terms of the kinds of rhetoric we heard from political leaders and campaigners um, about groups uh, who share a different faith uh, from them. We also then saw corresponding messaging on social media, uh, platforms like TikTok with specific parties. Uh, I think DAP, for example, and uh, the Chinese community in Malaysia kind of coming under fire. That continued post the results with references to May 13th, which of course, um, you know, as a knee-jerk reaction, people tend to get very, very worried by. And then we have now various parties issuing statements asking for a cooling down of the temperature. But I think that the reason why, um, if you were listening earlier, we're asking not just about whether you've noticed this uptick, but also whether you've stopped to think about your place in it, is because... It's because that's an important question, right? It's very easy when we think about hate speech to immediately kind of turn it outwards and, and point towards uh, institutionalized practices, which we'll talk about and which, of course, you know, there's a certain degree of fairness to that. It's very easy to, to go external. But I, I often wonder how much we forgive ourselves for that thing that um, you hear people say, we're all racist. We're all a little bit racist, so it's fine. Yeah, it's and it's also a question of, you know, I think definitions, right? So some things that we think are not particularly racist or just it's kind of on a casual basis. How does that accumulate and reach a, a fever pitch? Right? How do we create distrust uh, between us and others, especially on social media and the comments we make that, in fact, then, uh, you know, create the, the necessary conditions for things getting more and more extreme or ex uh, escalating, right, at, at, a, at a rate that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. We, of course, have a lot of voices coming in. We had the Conference of Rulers uh, asking for a tamp dampening down. In fact, some of the people responsible for some of the hate speech and conspiracy theories that laden with uh, racial distrust uh, themselves say that actually they're all for multiculturalism, you know, and they respect everybody's and rights. And then they and continue the hate speech. Well, that may be, right? So there's a lot of uh, flipping, uh, uh, flip-flopping, and some of it's got to do with the politics of the day and wanting leadership positions, but some of it just has to do with the general culture in which they immerse. But, you know, the question is, in the heat of the battle, yes, things get... Uh, get uh, the language gets uh, um, maybe, you know, more colourful and it gets a little stronger. But when does it tip into making the other person so demonic and so vilified that they are now worthy of extermination, right? So that's that's something that, say, uh, Mat Sabu has brought up. He's talked about the way in which the language turns into, uh, you know, Speaking of the other as an apostate, right? The, the whole issue of cafe, macafe, and so, so these are very interesting turning points in the the the, the general atmosphere. We do have uh, a lot of racism. It's all over the world. Uh, well, not, maybe not evenly spread, but um, and so we need to find uh, some clarity in this. I think. Yes, and 
I think that to a degree, if we're talking about something like social media and the way in which stuff gets spread, uh, the way in which stuff gets spread with a with an extra layer of editorialization on top of it with each new share, right? Um, a lot of that comes, I think, because you said earlier, where does it begin? And very often, I think it begins with strongly held preconceived notions that you think are harmless about other people. And and we hear this said all the time that, oh, uh, okay, I'm just going to use the Chinese as an example because it's the only safe one that I can. But, you know, you, you will hear it said that, oh, the Chinese are just always like that. And, and a casual statement like that sentence, which is often said um, about whatever trait it may be, it seems maybe not harmless, but not harmful, right, on the surface of it. But of course, if you keep it going, if you if you extend that, if you feed the that preconceived belief with with messaging from leaders, with messaging from social media, I think that's when you result in in this kind of deeply held beliefs that people then feel comfortable saying out loud. Yeah, there's also practices like if you look at the city where you go and, uh, you know, looking for a room, for instance, to, to rent, the number of people who mm-hmm. would encounter racism, right, and and the racism justified based on stereotypes about a community, oh, we can't have this kind of person, uh, so what's your name, you know, uh, and what, you know, what race are you before I agree to tell you whether I'm going to rent a place or not, and so the, the, I think those kind of practices Practices that people think are part of their property rights. I have a, I have a room. I can, I can rent it to anybody. In fact, it creates an atmosphere of distrust. Right? You think that oh, so these people, this you know, have decided that I'm not worthy of being a tenant, and so on and so forth. And I think we have. I think our cities are rampant with this kind of practices that provide. Uh, you know, they're like a petri dish, right? And and things can grow in it. So. All of which to say our conversation today is institutional to a degree, right? We want to talk about this uptick in racial rhetoric, whether it's something you've noticed, whether you have perhaps thoughts about how it can be addressed, but then also personal. Um, So on a personal level, how are we potentially with our own preconceived notions, with our own experiences and biases contributing to this atmosphere. If you'd like to weigh in and share, that number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. You can send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. After this, we're going to be joined by Faisal Aziz, President of ABIM. Keep it here on Inside Story, BFM 89.9. Be firmly motivated. BFM 89.9. It is 6.16 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. We're talking today about the rise of hate speech in our country, um, partly as a result of the recent general election, but also, you know, we want to talk about it in general, uh, in a public sense, right? Have you noticed an uptick in racial rhetoric Um are there suggestions you might have on how it is that we can mitigate this? But also on a personal level, um, you know, do you ever think about how perhaps your own preconceived notions or biases might be contributing to this? If you'd like to weigh in, that number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine and tweet us at BFM Radio. Joining us on the line now, we have Faisal Aziz, president of ABIM. Uh, Faisal, thanks for speaking with us today. Hi. Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, for having me. So were you surprised by the upsurge in um, the kind of divisive racial and religious rhetoric we saw during campaigning or has this become somewhat normalized, you think? Yeah, of course. Um, that's really uh, worrying because during the campaign period uh, for the last election, we see the hate speech has been dominating uh, Malaysia's corner of TikTok, especially. Uh, but yeah, in a general sense, uh, for us, uh, it is a good sign uh, when we could see politicians became more creative and, and innovative in conveying the message. But unfortunately, what concerns us more is when they reduce lack of any com- uh, constructive conversations and instead uh, fan sentiments of hatred and divisiveness. And I think we can refer to statements made by the police officers. For example, uh, when it was uh, reported that uh, police received a total of 3,400 uh, 83 reports related to G15 between November November 4th and 21st. So uh, that really concerns us. Uh, how uh, do we educate 
uh, the public, uh, especially in conveying and in receiving the message from the social media. Faisal, how would you distinguish between, you know, racialized approaches to politics, uh, self-representation, you know, I'm a champion of the community or I'm, a, you know, a Sarawak nationalist or a Malay nationalist versus hate speech? Where does the, are the lines blurred or are they yeah. very clear for you? Yeah, I think it is timely uh, to reform our uh, culture and way of thinking. When we talk about uh, racial or religious, or even any identity in Malaysia, like Sabahan or Sarawakian. Okay, uh, of course, it should be continued uh, in order to be strengthened with the aim uh, of developing the nations. Uh, but at the same time, we should bear in mind, uh, if you use the sentiments of uh, racial or religious identity, or whatever identity in uh, Malaysia, uh, it should not be used uh, to fend uh, flames, of, especially racial flames, via incitement, defamation, uh, that leads to hatred. So we, we need to uh, have or we need to draw certain lines. Uh, we use it in a positive manner to develop our nations together and uh, not to use in a negative manner uh, to incite hatred uh, that lead to violence among the community. Uh, so uh, for, for us, uh, the keyword is empowerment, actually. Of course, politicians, when they use the sentiments of a community, certain particular communities, of course, uh, what uh, it should be in their mind is about empowerment, empowering certain societies or empowering certain segments of societies, Malay or Chinese or Indian or Sarawakian or Sabahan and so on. Uh, but they should bear in mind uh, with this clear uh, objective uh, of empowerment. But... Uh, as I always say, uh, when, when we empower certain races, uh, it should not disempower other races as well. So, since at the end of the day, uh, all of us share the same benefits as Malaysians. So, TikTok uh, hosted several videos threatening a repeat of the May 13th racial riots over the recent period. Um, why does this moment in our political history remain such a potent image for those who engage in hate speech? Does it still have the power that it once had, well, either to strike fear or mobilise support? Yeah, uh, May 13th, eh, this is our problem. Uh, we always uh, perceive May 13th as a black day for us. Um, and we, we uh, conveniently keep May 13th uh, to remain as a tragedy that everyone should be cautious. So we tend to look at May 13 just from the angle of negativity. But uh, I think it is time to have a new narrative to this. Um, so why don't we try to declare May 13 as a National Racial Harmony Day as a counter-narrative to what has been embedded in our minds and history? Uh, maybe I can quote uh, what uh, is what, what was done in Singapore uh, when they declare uh, 21st of July every year as a racial harmony day. What happened on that particular day, uh, 21st of July in 1964, a racial riot happened and it led to uh, loss of 32 lives and uh, injuries. So on this particular day, when Singapore declared 21st of July as racial harmony day, uh, there are many programs uh, conducted especially in schools where students schools walking around school with their unique and beautiful costumes uh, symbolizing multi-ethnic communities in Singapore and at the same time uh, from what I learned from our friends uh, Singapore High Commission um, in Malaysia where in class teachers also facilitate discussions between students to talk about the importance of maintaining racial harmony when remembering the, the racial riot. So instead of uh, putting uh, May 13 as something that always being cautious about in a negative team or in a negative or in a, in a negative manner why don't we try to declare May 13 as a racial harmony day as a counter narrative so of course we should be cautious but at the same time we need to be positive or to bring uh, the agenda forward inshallah 
Yeah, one of the themes, uh, Faisal, you know, that emerged in hate speech is the fear of loss, a loss of privilege, a, a loss of ownership over the country, right? And this is coming from a sort of uh, extreme Malay nationalist uh, end of the spectrum. Do you think that, uh, you know, in kind of connection with this, that race-based policies uh, can be blamed for the persistence of this type of speech because it seems to be connected, right? The race praise privileges uh, and this fear of loss. Uh, of course, uh, there is no perfect policies or system in the world. Uh, but what is important is how do we impl- implement the policies in order to achieve certain objectives. So the issue is about the implementations. Uh, for example, when we talk about the affirmative actions or the race-based policies, if the policies are meant to reduce huge gap between races, certainly it is a good policies. Uh, but in terms of implementation, uh, ABIM, uh, as what always we uh, say in the public, uh, it should be done proportionately. So propor- proportionality uh, become a keyword. Uh, so uh, with the spirit of justice, when we talk about affirmative action, for example, reducing the gap, of course, it is part and parcel of justice. But if you fail to implement certain policies uh, that uh, was aimed to find justice with the element of proportionality, so it will bring about another injustice. So uh, we need to uh, have a clear mind about uh, uh, this kind of privileges or this kind of uh, policies, affirmative action, risk-based policies. It should be done. Uh, with its own objective, which at the end of the day to find or to have justice in our society. So I suppose the big question here is how do we begin to undo these deep-seated effects that hate speech has had on the country over the years? And, you know, I think that the question really is sincere efforts that aren't just cosmetic in nature. Uh, Yeah. uh, If Abim can suggest... uh, the government, especially the current uh, unity government, should propose uh, or should initiate uh, the Bangsa Malaysia concept. Uh, they should be begin with uh, forming the Bangsa Malaysia Institute to serve as a vehicle to bring about the agenda of national unity forward. Um, it, it, it is very important because now uh, we always perceive, for example, when we, when we talk about the problem of our societies now, we always perceive the problem by labeling the problem through the eyes of races. For example, uh, when we talk about poverty, or people will always blame the Malays. Poverty is a problem of Malays. Corruption, Chinese problems, and gangsterism is about Indian. But uh, we, we need to look at the problem as Malaysian problem. We need to tackle this problem together with the spirit of togetherness, Bangsa Malaysia spirit, uh, to to fight whatever problems that we have uh, in our country on the table. Because uh, for us, uh, through this leveling, it discourages society to be unified uh, in solving the problem. And unfortunately, it encourages stereotyping. Uh, sorry, stereotyping. Uh, people always uh, keep stereotyping the races uh, with certain problems. So it will cause another uh, 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 hatred uh, against certain particular uh, races. So uh, when, when when you have hatred uh, because of this kind of stereotyping by labeling certain races with their own certain weaknesses, uh, so it, it led to the discrimination or justified discrimination and what more, uh, what fears or what worries uh, it led to violence. So at the end of the day, we need to have a clear mind when we talk about problems, it should not be in a, a, a categorization of the races, but the problem should be Malaysian problem, and all of us need to be unified to tackle or to solve this problem. Now, you know, we speak uh, uh, of hate speech actually kind of loosely. We don't have an anti-hate speech law, uh, but it's being proposed. PKR Communications Director Lee Chen Chung has mooted it. Uh, do you think uh, that this is the right direction? Do you think our laws are sufficient? Um, and would you like um, to, you know, to uh, we actually? Sorry, we only have a minute for you uh, to answer this question. Uh, uh, police power is something that you think should be the last resort. 
I do agree. Or I'm a, I'm, I'm very positive when we talk about reforming any archaic laws. Uh, uh, of course, uh, when we talk about this hate speech, people always refer to seditions act. And of course, it is timely as well uh, to find a new way of uh, having the new law. Like, for example, racial harmony bill that that was discussed uh, many times before. And uh, now we have anti-hate speech law. Yes, it is a good uh, to find a new way uh, in tackling the new problems in our society. But uh, as I said, uh, since I, I, I was uh, from a legal background as well, at the end of the day, uh, proportionality matters. We need to uh, use law proportionately. It will not cause another injustice uh, when we uh, solve that particular problem. But uh, when we talk about laws, yeah, of course, it is part of the uh, solution. But uh, what we do believe is about education. How do we educate the young generation? And for us, uh, we should have this kind of end game generation. Uh, so, I mean, uh, we need to have a new generation uh, that... Uh, won't subscribe at all uh, about this kind of religious or racial hatred among society. So we start new chapter, educating them uh, in a positive manner. Faisal, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thank you very much for having me. That was Faisal Aziz, President of ABIM, weighing in on the, the rise of hate speech in our country at the moment and what can be done to mitigate it. We're also asking you that question and we have loads of answers already. We'll return for them. You're listening to Inside Story, BFM 89.9. Become fabulous millionaires. BFM 89.9. It is 6.39 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. And we've got a very, um, I think, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, an important but difficult to dissect, I think, topic on our show today because we're looking at hate speech, specifically in the context of how with recent, uh, with the elections, with the result of the elections, um, we saw a ramping up of this kind of rhetoric, both from political leaders as well as social media campaigns that some, many have argued were paid for by political leaders anyway. Um, the point is, we, we have seen a ramping up of this in general, and we want to talk both about that kind of hate speech, what happens in public, what happens when it's coordinated, and how we can mitigate that. But we also want to talk about our own personal culpability in this, right? How much um, living, how much does the fact that we live in a multiracial society where we all forgive each other for being just a little bit racist, how much has that kind of factored into what we're talking about today? And if you want to weigh in, uh, that number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. You can send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. So a lot of um, very interesting thoughts coming through. Let's start with uh, this from, well, let's start with an experience from Jeremy, who is who said, I was surprised when I was applying for a family card from a well-known furniture retailer. They asked me what my race was. I objected and complained to the manager, who then explained that it was so that they could, set, they could send me seasonal greetings. Strange that in the following five years, I haven't had any such seasonal greetings. Um, we need to stop asking for people's race here. They also asked, by the way, for religion. Yeah, that's interesting because the um, mining of this kind of data, the demand for it in forms is, is so regular that uh, pushing back on it often you know, gets you in a bit of trouble because uh, people don't see that as problematic. In, in this case, the person that uh, Jeremy was engaging with you know, clearly was trying to cover their tracks and, and make a good what was a question that was uncomfortable for you. But I wonder, though, you know, sometimes uh, whether we are also too quick to judge others and assume the worst, right? So, you know, I, I don't know, when it comes to retailers, what are they gathering this information for? Maybe that seasonal card was, then they've just failed to sell, send it. Maybe, maybe the budget for the card disappeared. <laughs> Oh, it's just that it's become such a norm to put race uh, on the on the form that, you know, taking it off requires some sort of effort. I, 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 I mean, I hear what you're saying, uh, especially in terms of, especially in terms of how for you know for businesses that mining of information might just be a way to be able to profile you. Um, but I also don't want to underplay the fact that for many of us, this is an increasing sensitivity, right? Like that there is an increasing desire to not be constantly asked to categorize yourself. Because I think in so doing, it, it is a reminder of 
you belong to this and everyone else is a something else. And, you know, we have enough visual signifiers of that. You walk anywhere in public in Malaysia and you know. And, you know, you don't need to constantly be reminded that you belong to X, you know, this group. Someone else belongs to that group. And I, I get the sensitivity. I, I understand also that it might just be part and parcel of what forms we have. But, you know, we should be moving away from it, I think. Okay, well, this is other... The flip side of it is that if you don't pick up this information and, you know, the preference, at least in in, in sort of regular speak among people who consider themselves progressives, is to be, uh, you know, race blind. I mean, the mm. blindness has become... is a virtue, right, in this regard. But also then when you stop collecting this information, how do you deal with demands for increased diversity? And so uh, I find, you know, Know, that there are organizations that because they have a diversity quarter, they really want to know much more about you than they would otherwise, right, in order to uh, to deal with that, because the organization needs to know how many people they have, how many women as opposed to men, and where they're distributed, and how do we create balance. So, yes, I think there's a deep... Uh, mistrust of uh, some of this uh, data collection, uh, but it doesn't always have to be. And I think you have to take, I mean, Jeremy, uh, complete respect for your experience. I, I don't know enough to say, you know, whether you're erring on the side of generosity or not. We have um, a voice note that's come in, actually, and this is from Matt Aziz. Good evening, everyone on BFM. Um, uh, regarding this, we have to look at a long-term solution whereby we have to put all our children right from standard one together. No different school. Go Chinese go to Chinese school, Malay go to Malay school, Indian go to Indian school. What what are we doing? We are already separating them right from beginning. Why don't we put them all together in the same school, nurture them with love and respect? And after 10 years or 12 years, maybe you can see the benefit of our integration. Thank you so much for sending that through, Matt Aziz. I think that um, the... I'm not surprised that we have gone so quickly to the subject of education and our schools because this is one that we, we speak often actually on the show about how talking about one thing in our country is never just the one thing. And this is a good example of that, I think. Yeah, though I, I must say, because there was a, a very recent uh, statement by a, a former um, UITM vice chancellor who said that, you know, Anwar Ibrahim should... Uh, should uh, discuss this matter of um of you know having a single school system mm-hmm. now, my my push back on that you know uh, all all respect to you and your views because i think what you you are tapping into the sentiment that if everybody's together then it fosters unity i think that's fine but when you look at the form of uh, UITM uh, vice chancellor, you see some other agenda in this. And the destruction of the Chinese school system uh, is part of an extremist uh, viewpoint that emerges all the time. And the fact that, uh, you know, um, that it's sort of now trying to clothe itself in multiculturalism is a, is a, is a problematic one. So it's, yeah, a, I, it's a huge conversation. I'm yeah. not quite sure how to deal with this, except to say there are ways of fostering, you know, uh, unity and, and this love of the nation among young people without, uh, you know, first starting with dismantling what is in fact a very successful school system, you know, that produces quality education. And so... Uh, so I, I, I agree with the sentiment, I think, that we that Malaysians need to have exposure to one another. Uh, I think that for me, that was what I took away from that. Not, I agree that if we're going to start talking about vernacular schools and a single stream system, that uh, we will be here till tomorrow. We will, we will check in the morning run when they come in at 7am because it's just not possible. But I, I think that um, that idea of exposure and the reality that in our schools today, as they exist today, you do often have people who only really encounter other people of different races when they hit, um, sometimes not even university, when they start working. Um, you know, And that's too late. Yeah, so the funny thing is, when you look at the 
actual facts on the ground, the Chinese schools schools are probably more multicultural, more multiracial <laughs> than the national schools, and very different from how I grew up. I grew up in a very multiracial national school system, maybe a school system that was still working. So yes, this is not the topic for today. Uh, when we talk about that, it's a question: is how do we create a national school system? That is so good and has all these positive values uh, that everybody that will want to go, go there. there. Mm, yes, uh, we do also have um, a caller on the line with us. We've got Raj. Raj, good evening. What are your thoughts? Hi, good evening. It's so funny that we are talking about the education system because that was where I was headed earlier <laughs> on. So uh, I guess uh, the first question we actually, as Malaysians, we have to ask ourselves is: How do you identify yourself? Do you identify yourself based on your race, your religion? or you identify yourself as a Malaysian, or even as a global citizen for that matter. So how do we deal with this? So this has been going on, I would say, again, it's the education system. It's, you know, years of doing of that. And, um, yeah, it would be better to dismantle something like that. And I guess, you know, the onus is on uh, Dr. Sriano Ibrahim to, to do that right now. But, okay, as an individual, you know, how do we mitigate this situation? So... How do we do that is we've got to consciously think ourselves as, yeah, we are Malaysians. And it is about time we left our race, religion and creed behind. You know, that is something that you deal with. You know, you have your family, you have your background and what, what not. But as Malaysians, when you deal with another person in public, you look at them as a fellow Malaysian. And, you know, over time, this probably could solve the problem. And I guess that whatever education system that we are going to foster for the future should, you know, bring, you should use this as a principle. And we cannot go wrong in that way. Raj, very quick question for you. Do you think that actually Malaysians are infinitely more reasonable and tolerant and accepting of each other than, say, politicians are in their political speeches? I think you have that answer, you know, on what happened the last year, like uh, last year, everyone got together, you know, there, there was no, you know, Indian, Chinese, Malays and whatnot. You know, everyone helped everyone. And, you know, if you go to us, so I'm, I'm a, a service-based uh, uh, profession. So, you know, we don't look at that. You know, if you look at that, you cannot serve everyone, right? You serve everyone regardless of who they are. So um, I guess, yeah, Malaysians are more forgiving than politicians. And politicians, they do have their agenda. We have right-wing politicians and, you know, uh, obviously we need, we need somebody more centred so we can solve our problem. Raj, thank you so much for calling today. Um, I think a, a number of good points being made there. We also have more messages uh, and voice notes coming in. So if you want to weigh in, today we're talking about the issue of hate speech and how, yes, on an institutional level we need to address it, but also on a personal level, where do we factor in, right? What have we contributed to this and what can we do now to stop it? Um, if you'd like to weigh in, that number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. You can send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Best flipping moments. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It is 6.51. You're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. And today we are discussing the issue of hate speech because there has been this uptick in it ever since... Well, forever, actually. It's been a slow wave of it picking up, um, but it really kind of ramped up in response to GE15. And so we're talking about institutionally, on a public level, what needs to be done, and then on a private level um, with ourselves. What have we brought to this? Right, and what can we do now to stop it? If you'd like to weigh in on on either level, you can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. So we have a message from Sue Ng, who's referring specifically, Sharat, to a point you brought up earlier. Um, saying in answer to Sharat's question about differentiating representation from othering, um, the, the Abim president said we should empower one's group without disempowering the other. That's easy to say, but how? Sometimes representation can already imply othering, like the Majlis Tindakan Economy Melayu. On the one hand, I understand the need for representation, but on the other, it's just so jarring for me. I do like his idea about creating a new narrative for May 13th, though. 
Yeah, so, yeah, it is tricky. Um, and when one thinks about uh, the way in which the group identity is created, often is created with suggesting that there is the other. But you can talk about difference without necessarily othering. I th- you know, one can can speak of um, the qualities of the, of the in-group, of what you believe in, your values. You can say it's different from others, but the other doesn't have to represent an existential threat to you. And that's the distinction. When the the presence of the other, you know, uh, is destructive to your own identity, then what is the natural solution? It is to destroy the other or to to make them so subordinate and insignificant that they don't uh, threaten you. So that's where I think there's a dividing line. You can tell. And I think it partly even in the flip-flopping of politicians, right, who on one hand want to mobilize their own base, but at the same time know that there's no way to lead this country without first uh, accepting the multi-ethnic, multi-confessional nature of the country. I agree with you. To a point, I think that at the moment, um, I go back to this, the, the, the word sensitivity. So I think that in response um, to heightened racial rhetoric, you get a heightened sensitivity, right? Everybody's more sensitive to these sorts of things than we otherwise would be. And I think that that's where, um, to your point about ensuring that you can represent yourself or, or quote unquote, your group without then othering others. Uh, I think that that is... Of course, it's doable. I don't know if right now we need some sort of realignment to make it more doable or, or to make it doable in such a way that people don't immediately perceive, why are you only representing this group? Um, you know, what kind of representation is this? How come I cannot join? You know, if you cannot kind of answer those questions or at least situate yourself in such a way that people don't immediately feel that, then it's tough. And of course, that's not entirely within your control because um, that level of sensitivity is there right now. And it's there as a response to years and decades of this sort of rhetoric. Yeah, so the, one of the problems is that for the majority group, uh, wherever you are the majority and whoever the majority is, um, you know, setting up your own club is always going to be perceived as a threat, uh, especially by minorities. But we never question the right of minority groups to set up their own little club because because of their sort of because they are, in fact, the minority. Nobody would say, oh, it's wrong for, you know, Orang Asli communities to band together and create yeah. an association. Or somehow, uh, you know, if I can't join the Orang Asli community, then, you know, I've been wronged and you know, it's, it's racist. I mean, nobody would say that precisely because they're a minority community and they're tiny and we we recognize the value that they get from coming together and um, strengthening their own identity and um, trying to empower themselves. I mean, coming back to Faisal's position about empowerment. Mm. So can empowerment work uh, uh, without, in fact, leading to disempowerment? I, it's tricky, but I, I think it's part of this ongoing conversation where you, you look at where it's stopping, um, you know, it's, it, 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 it becomes problematic. So, I mean, we wouldn't say, oh, women can't have their own associations. It's it's dangerous for women. I mean, do we say that? Well, some people might. But, you know, it's but clearly we recognize that, you know, especially if women have been disadvantaged or disproportionately um, uh, underrepresented in certain uh, fields of of uh, of the professions or social life. We recognize it's a right for them to organize, to empower themselves. And that might uh, require some level of assertion, right, of their uh, of to bump up their visibility within the community. So I think that there are uh, there is a very good point being made by both Yao Yang and Jason. So Yao Yang says, is it a problem with hate speech or is it a problem with uneven treatment towards hate speech? Uh, Jason says, to be honest, I don't think I've seen a politician being punished for making race-based remarks. So far, actions are only taken for those who insult the sovereign. That's fine. But the punishment should extend to these politicians as well so people know it's wrong. And that idea of uneven... So while we're talking about uneven treatment, right, whether majority or minority group, this question of how hate speech is dealt with, whether it's just with a a slap on the wrist that isn't even real, it's just a verbal, hey, cool it down, guys, be cool, um, or whether it, you see actual actions being taken. Maybe, you know, whether it should come from the cops is something that I think we'll discuss later, but sanctions, right, within your own party, within your coalition, like there are ways in which it can it can hurt. But at the moment, all we get is everybody 
should just stop doing this, which makes it sound as if everybody is in fact doing it as opposed to some parties much more than others. Yeah, so there's an asymmetry, I think, in that. Um, but let's just go back to the word hate and hate speech, right? Cause things can be hateful without necessarily being hate speech. There are some legal definitions. that there are, uh, There's a global consensus, by which I don't mean everybody, but I think among experts about what they want hate speech to mean. Um, but if you look at some concrete examples, Say oh, something that's condescending, but not necessarily um, uh, hate. Uh, for instance, you know, uh, the past president was accused of referring to the natives of Srawa as, you know, people who wear loincloth, you know, chawat. And, you know, th- that hurt because it, it did come from, or at least presumed to come from a place of condescension uh, and a disregard for the for the culture of those communities. So how many of us have thought lowly of rural peoples or people who who live, or tribal peoples. I think it's much more than just a hadith. We're talking today about an uptick in hate speech and racial rhetoric. Is this something you've noticed? Um, have you kind of stopped uh, to consider where it is that we ourselves, um, you know, you yourself might enter the picture. Let us know what you think. You can call us, you can send us a voice note or WhatsApp and of course tweet us as well at BFM Radio. Bombing Frustrated Minds, BFM 89.9. It is 7.08. You're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. We're talking about hate speech, both on an institutional level and the fact that we've been seeing it rise, um, but also on a personal level and how it intersects really with the kind of casual racism that we see on a pretty consistent basis here in our country. And we're asking you for your thoughts on this. You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. So um we have some some thoughts that have continued to come in and some responses to the conversation earlier. So Kamaru Nizam says, I have some problem with being race blind. For me, the issue of racism in Malaysia should be solved via a Malaysian mindset, not the Western template of unity and racism. Uh, It's easy to talk about being fair to other races, but the heat is always when one race ends up being ridiculed, degraded or seen in a negative way, then everyone gets sensitive. I also agree with Sherrod about empowerment. It becomes bad when the empowered start to feel or become all too powerful. Yeah, just that's not my idea. I mean, Faisal, our guest from Abim, you know, talked about that because there is something to be said about the need for communities and uh, to be free to associate and to bring together their members and and to think about what they need uh, without being first, you know, uh, to be immediately accused of, uh, you know, becoming uh, supremacist and whatnot. And I think, you know, uh, Kamaro, we we need a, a language that captures and calibrates all these different phenomena that we see around us. So we don't label everything as racist. We don't label everything that's uh, as hate speech that isn't quite that, right? So we need some sort of uh, uh, calibration, meaning different grades uh, you might say that they're all in the family of racism, but, you know, mm. there is. And you already use that expression, casual racism, uh, which... Which is harmful, which is harmful, but distinct from hate speech, right? I think is the point here. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and then there are all kinds of practices and, you know, that are really about the way mo- the modern world works. Say, for instance, now we have uh, uh, gated communities and, you know, g- you know, I don't know if anybody's done a study about whether gated communities become mono-ethnic. Uh, I, you know, c- uh, and then there are all kinds of other ways in which look at some, if you go on um, bookings.com or something like that, you get hotels now uh, saying that they they um, have an exclusive clientele or they, 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 they target a particular mm. community. That's also happening. So we can see how capitalism or business practices, because they're trying to deliver to the customers an experience uh, and comfort level, might go down this route, inadvertently creating the template of separation, right? Or rather this dynamic of separation. The dynamic of separation and that feeling of only being comfortable when you are apart. And I think that that is, that's uh, also uh, a dangerous thing. Among your own people. Exactly, yes. Um, that, that sense that, ah, 
now we can let our hair down. Now we can be ourselves when, you know, of course, that, that shouldn't be the case. So we have an anonymous listener who says, as a Malaysian Chinese Muslim who likes variety in my choice of friends, I'm definitely distressed by the way our so-called leaders are behaving. All I can say is, if you have nothing good to say, we should keep quiet. I try my best to keep to the adage that less is sometimes more. And it has been proven over and over again that we shouldn't be too good to our friends nor too mean to our enemies. For a friend may one day become an enemy or the enemy may become a friend. Look at our current struggle to have a government um, when a large number of the rakyat is in dire straits. I'd like to remind that if one truly believes that sustenance or rizuki is decided by God, the worry should not be about other people taking away our rights and sustenance. We should focus on doing things to deserve the rewards from the Almighty. You know, uh, and Nana, um, your personal history might be very interesting, and I I can only speculate, but I know people uh, who have uh, converted from one religion to another, and often accused by the people in their former group of uh, you know treachery or leaving, and uh, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. And you see it and hear it all the time. We're so we're, we find it very difficult to accept these shifts in um, in identity when they happen, and people who are on the margin often suffer quite a bit because of that. It's very unfortunate. We also have a couple of voice notes um, that I think we can play before we get to our next guest. Here is, um, well, let's start with a response to a voice note from earlier from Matt Aziz, who spoke about the the need to consider integration within our schools. Uh, Azura here is responding to that. Hi, on the subject of being separated um, from different races at the school stage, I'm in the mid-30s and as of now, my friends who are Muslim Malays, because our government education system has been so weak, my Malay Muslim friends, normally they would send to the international Islamic schools. And for those that are non-Malays, they send their school, their kids to the Sekolah Jenis Kebangsaan. I have chosen the route to send my kids to a government school but I chose a school that had the highest mixed race kind. So my my kids' classmates are actually, half of them are non-Malays. And I appreciate that diversity. And it's really sad that it's hard to get mixed, like really mixed race kids in our government schools. So this has to change. Our government schools have to buck up. It has to be of better quality and so that, you know, eventually parents have the faith or have the trust in the education system and send their kids to a normal government school, just like the old days. Azura, thanks so much for that voice note. Uh, we also have another one referencing school. We knew it would go there. We really knew it would go there with, once you bring up education. Um, but here is Bing. Well, I noticed this uh, with my kid when... Uh uh, up from kindergarten right up to be around standard three lah, huh? uh, goes to a, a private school, no doubt, but multicultural. The situation then, I think my kid was literally colorblind and became a bit more uh, noticeable in terms of the attitude uh, towards the later part of uh, standard six level or even form one. And you know, becomes a bit. I will consider my kid to be a bit more racist because this was when you know you they generally get the feel of how being left out, being of a different color, um, and also rightfully from even the way the parents like myself are talking at home. So you can have a vernacular system whatsoever in uh, in schools, but at the end of the day, it's the actions of the adults uh, that will affect uh, the outcome of the children. So I think uh, it's just not so much about Anwar's shoulders that he has to bear this responsibility, but I think at the end of the day, it's everyone's responsibility. And to unify this is a long, long journey. Right? It's not just within five years. I think it will pick up another 20 years at least. 
Bing, thanks so much uh, for sending that through and, and also I think for highlighting the need for personal responsibility. It sounded there like you arrived safely at your destination. I think that was, <laughs> was that the sound of a handbrake anyway? Um, thanks so much for sending that through. Um, I, I wanted to close off because I think this message sets up uh, our next interview. Um, Aliza says, I think when talking about hate speech, a good and detailed law together with enforcement plays an important role. Nowadays, if someone um, you know, commits hate speech, the standard response is my account was hacked or just an apology. I think that the law should come down on people like this. There is a difference between stating obvious facts that can sometimes hurt and actual hate speech. Woke culture needs to also put a lot of weight on facts and truths. Hate speech needs to be defined and enforced. A lack of definition and a lack of enforcement is a problem. Maybe PDR should set up a force to hunt down people doing hate speech. And, you know, we're going to be exploring some of this with our next guest, uh, Nalini Elumalai from Article 19. So do keep those thoughts coming and keep it here on Inside Story, BFM 89.9. Banish fraudulent manoeuvres, BFM. 89.9. It is 7.18 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. Uh, we are concluding our discussion on hate speech by talking about something that really needs to be talked about, where law and enforcement enters the picture. Joining us now to talk about this is Nalini Elumalai, ac- activist and senior program officer at Article 19. Nalini, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So uh, let's start with some facts and figures. PDRM's GE15 Operations Director, Hazani Ghazali, has said that 515 investigation papers have been opened, 180 cases have been referred to the Deputy Public Prosecutor. Can you put these numbers in perspective for us? Yeah, I think firstly, I just I just want to say that it wasn't very clear from the police reporting that how many of these investigations is actually are related to hate speech and how many of it are reported or investigated for a legitimate speech, uh, you know. Um, perhaps what we need from police is like more information about um, who and how was this investigation uh, took place and what is the content of these investigations on, on whoever being investigated, um, you know, or for a hate speech or a legitimate speech. Because I think through our work and also documentation by many NGOs in Malaysia, especially the human rights community here, we know there is a misinterpretation of hate speech by the state and police and also the application of the law also been very, very selective. So I think we need further information uh, from the police, like, you know, on, on this figure that has been has been published. But what I can tell for sure is like there's definitely lack of um, information and awareness about freedom of expression in hate, hate speech in Malaysia, especially when it's come to enforcement uh, agencies or authorities. Uh, Nalini, can you give us a sense of whether there have been successful prosecutions for what we would, uh, you know, in common language call hate speech, but maybe defined differently under the law as sedition as such? Yes, yeah, Sharad. Actually, I just, you know, before we go to the prosecution, I, uh, it's a good question that I want to just go into like, you know, what is hate speech actually? Um, hate speech is an extremely broad phrase which is not really defined under the international law. Um, and if you use the term hate speech as a reference point, and we are bound to run into very like confusion and potential misapplication of the law. And hate speech, what we agreed globally by the human rights communities or everyone who work on this countering hate speech work is like hate speech is a manifestation of underlying discrimination and inequality in country or in society. Hate speech is in any expression or discrimination an advocacy of hatred towards individuals uh, or group of people basis of specific characteristic that protected by the international law. And this expression here can be uh, or opinions or ideas of hate may take um, in many forms, actually written, nonverbal, visuals, artistics, and maybe uh, can be disseminated through like any media, like, including internet, print, radio or television. Um, but the question that, that I think we need to ask is like under the international human rights law, the question is like whether Malaysia has effectively prosecuted speech that must be criminalized under the human rights framework. Um, because like in our experience of working on hate speech and also freedom of expression, we know in Malaysia that, you know, we, uh, the government in the past has been used, all the government in the past, uh, has been, you know, used multiple repressive laws like Communication and Multimedia Act, Sedition Act and Penal Code to criminalize alleged online hate speech. And 
and some of the speeches has been categorized as hate speech by this uh, by police or MCMC is actually actually is legitimate speeches. So we have very selective prosecution under the repressive law in in Malaysia. So that is what concerning um, and Malaysia's legal framework framework does have provisions to address the most dangerous form of expression, such as incitement to violence. Um, but we should be very, very clear that those legal provisions is actually to protect everyone, including migrants, refugees, LGBT communities, and other persons who could be put in danger by this speech. So PKR Communications Director Lee Chen Chung has mooted the tabling of specifically an anti-hate speech law. Do you think that there is a need to have this kind of specific legislation? Is there a model that we could look to? I think, the, like I said, that, you know, hate speech is a manifestation of discrimination and inequality in, in society. So when we face with societal conflict and hateful rhetoric, you know, governments around the world often make the mistakes. Or Also, people, you know, usually will come out and say that, um, you know, we should have these hate speech laws. We should have a very uh, restrictive censorship, criminal penalties through legislation which is which is um, valid points because you know it is it is concerning when we talk about hate speech it is concerning when we have so much of hate going on in the society but in the context of malaysia when uh, we have a, such a environment where we we have a very selective uh, freedom of expression uh, we have very problematic laws in malaysia and our environment is not vital to have any further uh, laws that could be abused. Um, and we need to make sure that the existing provisions under the penal code, for example, are narrowly defined, and it has to be in line with international human rights law and standard. And I think, in my opinion, um, criminalization or legislation is not the only way to counter hate speech or the underlying tensions in Malaysia. That it should be holistic approach, like multi-stakeholder approach, that the whole society have to come together, because there must be effective initiative through policies that can promote pluralism, that can cover everyone without any bias. I think hate speech is, you know, it can't deal with hate speech without dealing with the inequality or discrimination in society. I think that is that is what, uh, it, it's my opinion. I think. Well, so Nali, yeah, thank you very much for that. I mean, I think what um, you point to is very important, but I, I do want to just press on with the question of how will we define hate speech? And I want to go to the Johannesburg principles mm-hmm. and i believe uh, without you know reading the entire paragraph but basically yeah. says that you should be free to say anything be critical unless and i'm going to quote this is an important point of it the criticism or insult is was intended and likely to incite imminent violence so that's yeah. the dividing line do we see that in malaysia today uh you know hate speech that is in fact inciting imminent violence? I think, um, Shara, just before we go to this uh, Johannes uh, um, principles that you read, I think we have one important um, international standard that we have to remember and we have to, I know human rights law can be very difficult for like layman people to understand, but it's very important to know that under the international law, we have Article 19, and Article 20, bracket 2, which is very important. Article 19 is basically article just allow everyone to have a freedom of speech. And Article 93 is basically any restrictions or any form of restriction of freedom of expression must come with three-part tests. For example, it has to be prohibited or provided by law. It has to be have a legitimate aim. Like it has to be like inciting violence, um, you know, uh, like public uh, national security, in, in danger, and it has to be proportionate and also necessary. And Article 22 is of the uh, ICCPR, International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, clearly stated that any form of incitement to violence or any form of advocacy of hate should be prohibited by law. And I understand when we come back to Malaysia at this point of time, there are so many things was going on, especially post-election with a lot of um, you know videos and everything was, was going around and and deliberately was disseminated, uh, you know. Uh, but I think that is um, that is very important that we take a lot of um, uh, measures to make sure that you know uh, one whoever involved in those dissemination of 
videos and intend to create violence or intend to create disharmony in the country, then they should be investigated. There should be action taken against them. But again, I want to come back to this international law. Any restriction of, form, uh, of in freedom of expression must be provided by law, must have necessary and proportionate, and it has to be, it has to have a legitimate aim. And that's how, and you know, and I think that's the most important that we need to look into it. So I think when we apply in Malaysia, I think we have this tendency to think everything is hate speech and everything, everything, uh, every opinion is negative. Every opinion should be, you know, limited and restricted. I think there is a way for us to identify which speech is dangerous and which is not, and which is, should be allowed uh, in Malaysia. And I think that comes with international standards. Yeah? And one of the international standards clearly stated how to identify hate speech is robot plan of actions. And you mentioned about the Johannes uh, uh, principles. Yeah? And we have actually moved from there to a couple of international standards, which is robot plan of action is clearly said that there's a six-part test that you have to go through when you want to identify hate speech, for example. And the intent and is one of the main things. And also the UN resolution 1618 is basically a, a, a UN document that that is for the main main uh, reason or main aim of the document is like combating any religious intolerance or discrimination or incitement to violence based on race and religion. So I think, you know, we do have really good human rights standards, um, you know, that we can actually use um, to implement uh, and, you know, the standards we can implement in our, in our country. Nalini, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. That was Nalini Elumalai, activist and senior program officer at Article 19, talking about where the law uh, and enforcement enters the picture when we're talking about mitigating hate speech. Keep those thoughts coming. Uh, you can, of course, continue to WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. You're listening to BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, Download the BFM app.